The following podcast is an extract from the debate Big Data Does Size Matter and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. The speakers are Tamandra Harkness, journalist, writer and broadcaster and author of Big Data Does Size Matter, Zulfikar Abani, senior science and technology journalist at Deutsche Welle, Will Moy, director of Full Fact, and Dr Alex Palsland, principal scientist at Immunicore Limited, who are also the sponsors of this session. The chair is Rob Lyons, Science and Technology Director at the Institute of Ideas. Thank you. Uh, I could stand up at the lectern, but that feels a bit formal, really. Um, so it's very nice to be, it's very nice to be speaking uh, instead of chairing. I do a lot of chairing most years here, and it's very nice to be speaking about a book. Really, I should probably admit that about five years of chairing discussions about big data here and in other places and absorbing the ideas of other people has you know, gone a lot of the way towards actually being able to write a book. So, you know, first off, I'd like to thank all the people whose ideas and arguments, even if I disagreed with them, helped me condense a big subject into a, into a small book. Uh, and the kind of the brief of today, in a way, is what I set out to do, which is to be an introduction for people who really don't know anything, but hear the phrase and go, sounds kind of important, I probably should know what that is, but I don't really, and do I really have to study maths and computing? And so I set out to write a book that literally starts with, what is data? Oh, good, nobody winced and said, what are data? <laughs> uh, usually somebody does. Uh, all the way from that to, well, what are the things we should be arguing about? So I think I've got about 10 minutes to <laughs> get you through that. So, okay, a little rundown. I called it Does Size Matter, partly to hint that there would be jokes in it, and indeed there are, <coughs> and partly to raise the idea that actually, although it's called big data, just the scale of the data is not the, the sole important thing. And when I started trying to look and define how big it is, it just became ridiculous because what was a massive a few years ago, uh, even when, when the phrase started being used, which was only a few years ago, there was a, a publication which talked about some of the largest known data sets of several petabytes. And so I kind of worked out what that would be in current technology. And I've got a, I've got a little hard drive which I use to back up the book, which is about you know, that big and so... You could fit four of them into the space the book takes up, and that's a terabyte. So I worked out you could fit some of the largest known data sets to science a few years ago, basically onto a few suitcases on a luggage trolley. So the size alone doesn't tell you that much because it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. There's a, there's a standard international measurement of very large things, which is the to the moon and back. And if you put all the known data to mankind onto CDs, it would stretch to the moon and back you know, 20 times or probably 100 times. Or And then you think, who puts data on CDs? They're not big <laughs> enough anymore. That's So size alone is not what makes it interesting. Uh, so I managed to devise a backronym. I managed to get an acronym for the things that I think are distinctive and squash them into D-A-T-A for data. So I'll give you a quick romp through those, which might give you an idea of what I think is is new and interesting, and then talk about why we're talking about it so much. So the D is about different kinds of data and being able to put them together. I mean, if you want to get technical, you could talk about dimensions. You could talk about different dimensions of one thing. So you could look at a person and say, well, you know, I can look at their location. I mean, even your mobile phone, in fact, will have so many different dimensions 
uh, different data sets about you, be able to know where you are, but also who you're connecting with, uh, which Wi-Fi networks you've tried to hook up with, who you're calling, uh, even things about how you move, because it's got accelerometers in it. Uh, and that's one of the really useful things about big data is being able to put different types of information together really easily. And in fact, I spoke to a brain scientist called Professor Paul Matthews, who said, well, the difference between big data and large data is I can now get a thousand brain scans instead of just 20. Uh, so if I want to talk about how brain size varies in humans, I can now look at a thousand brain scans. And that's better than looking at 20 but it's really just more of the same. I'm asking the same question of the same type of data. He said, that's just large data. What gets exciting is when I can put that together with those people's medical records, with the postcodes where they've lived, with the weather records of those postcodes. And then I can start to look at the relationship between the amount of sunshine they got and the progression of their multiple sclerosis. And I can examine my hypothesis that there is a relationship between vitamin D intake and MS. Uh, so, and that, he said, that's big data, because by putting different things together, uh, I can actually say something new. Uh, the, the first A, because obviously there's two A's, stands for automatic, so all this kind of data is being very automatically gathered. Uh, the, again, your mobile phone is collecting all this stuff without you having to try or even be aware of it. Every time you use an Oyster card to travel or your bank card, it's automatically collecting you onto a database. It's really the default now to collect data than rather not collect it. If, if you tried to not have any of your data collected, it would be impossible to live in the modern world. Uh, and this means that people just collect the data first and then later decide what to do with it. And, and this can be really useful because you can go back and ask questions you didn't know you wanted to ask because you've already got the data there. There's obviously downsides as well to that and hopefully we'll come on to those a little bit um, the lovely example I found does anyone here use an app called Strava no wow so, yes one person I would like to know who it is because they're the fit people in the room and don't pick a fight with them later uh, but it's basically if you go running or cycling you put this app on your phone and it will tell you where you've been uh, you can upload it as a map. It will tell you how many hills you've gone up and down, how far you've gone. You can set it up, tell you how many calories you've burned, that kind of thing. And again, it does this automatically. And uh, But you can make nice use of it. People draw little maps with the routes that they take. And there's a very sweet example. A guy called Murphy Mack in San Francisco uploaded his cycle ride, which burnt 749 calories and took, I can't remember how many minutes, uh, and the map that it drew on the map of San Francisco was a heart with Marry Me Emily inside. And you can be like, no, it is, but what's really sweet is because it, it's a kind of, if you're logged into Strava, anybody can see it. And then the people can comment. And the first comment's from somebody called Emily going, yes, I love you, kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> so, uh, so, and they can only do that because this is all automatic. All this data collection and processing just happens seamlessly and in an opaque way, you know, he didn't have to, I mean, he lived in San Francisco, so probably he did write the code, but, you know, <laughs> you didn't have to. You don't have to know how it works for it to work. Uh, the T is for time, because this stuff is happening so automatically and so fast that you've almost got a stream of data coming in in real time, which is really useful, because you know, it's the difference between being able to log on to your online bank account and see exactly 
how much money you've got and what's gone out and having to wait for a, a statement to come in the post a month later and go, what? I spent how much? Uh, but it also means then that because of the processing, you can find patterns that are evolving in time. So, for example, all our Oyster cards and travel cards are helping spot the patterns of travel on public transport and see where the peaks are and where, where maybe we need more trains and so on. Uh, and you can also then project those patterns into the future and use those to make predictions. Uh, obviously, this is dangerous because the temptation is to say, my computer has predicted this, so therefore that's what the future will be. It's not. It's a projection of a mathematical model. But nevertheless, it is really useful. Uh, I spoke to a company called Black Swan, really helpful. They call themselves predictive analytics because apparently big data is not fashionable enough anymore. Uh, but they do exactly this kind of thing and they combine different data sets. So my favourite example is they work with one of the supermarkets to predict which is going to be the busy weekend, the first weekend of the year where we all suddenly decide to have a barbecue. And obviously if the supermarkets get it wrong, they'll either have loads of unsold burgers and chicken legs or they won't have the burgers and chicken legs and we'll go to some other supermarket. So it's important for them. And they use, obviously, past sales records. They use weather forecasts. And then they look at Twitter and see how many people are tweeting, oh, it's sunny, going to get in the garden, oh, we're going to have a barbecue. And they, and they use all this to make these predictions. Also some more serious ones about doctors in A&E and, and so on. What really makes me laugh is they're a new company, uh, but they're doing really well. They've only been going about six years, I think. And, and they've expanded so fast that they've had to move office nine times suggesting that they're not really using their own predictive <laughs> capacities on their own future business needs very well. So that's the T for time. So it's projecting forward in time and also in real time. And the final A is for artificial intelligence or AI, because that, I think, is something else that's new, that it's not just about using computers which are fantastically fast calculators. It's using different kinds of computing methods. Uh, for example, machine learning is really important. So instead of... So, okay, so if I asked you to define a cat for me in a way that would reliably enable a computer or maybe an alien that hadn't seen one to distinguish cats from things that are not cats, that would be quite hard, I think, to get a rule that would always apply or a series of rules that would always apply. So you could always reliably say, that's cat, that's not a cat. Um, I did say this to a group of lawyers once. They went, oh, we could, but it would cost you. <laughs> uh, but, that's, but that's very difficult. But if you see a series of pictures of cats and not cats, you can just go, yeah, it's a cat, that's not a cat. That's a, no, that's definitely not a cat. Um, and how did you do that? You learnt it as a child by pointing at things that you thought were cats, and your parents would either go, yes, very good, it's a cat, or no, it's a dog, or Donald Trump's wig. <laughs> um, I put that in the book before it looked like he was going to be the next president of the United States so I'll never be allowed back in America again after November uh, so and that's machine learning that's, that's teaching a computer <laughs> the same way that you learned what they do is they will show the computer like a thousand pictures of cats a thousand pictures of things that aren't cats labelled accordingly and the computer will go okay and then it you give it another 2,000 pictures, but you don't tell it which is which, and you let it do the sorting, and you say, no, that's wrong, that's right, that's right. And so it, it learns, and it makes its own rules. So we don't actually know what are the rules that it's applying. 
We don't know how it's deciding that that's a cat, that's not a cat. They're getting very good at this, by the way. They're getting very reliable. And they, they can also do things like examine brain scans and say, this one's normal, this one's not normal. You should check this one out. There's something wrong here. Um, so it's a very useful quality. But it's a bit odd that we don't know what the criteria are that the computer is using. So that's artificial intelligence, which is part of the great power of big data. But it also can be a problem when it's applied to people. Because it's not just in scientific research and business and marketing and technology that big data is being used. I mean, it is, it is doing great things. We'd never have found the Higgs boson without big data. Uh, it's really helping businesses. The oil and gas industry have been using these techniques for a long time um, to keep track of things automatically by having sensors throughout a system. So if you've got a big oil field and you've got sensors everywhere, the system can say, oh, we've got a loss of pressure over here, this might be a leak, you should shut this down, or even automatically shut it down while you check it out, or say, this part is not performing uh, normally, we're getting some abnormal readings here, it's probably wearing out, you should probably order a replacement, all that kind of thing. Fantastic for industries, make it really efficient. But it's also being used on people, and this is where I start to have more qualms. Uh, there's been quite a lot in the press recently about the American justice system. How long have I got left, by the way? I failed uh, to look at the clock. Okay, good. Um, so the American justice system uses these <laughs> algorithms, I don't think we do over here yet, to try and predict who will reoffend and who won't. And their motivation for this is great because they recognise that. They just jail way too many people in America. And they want to jail fewer people, but they don't want to not jail somebody who then goes out and shoots somebody. So what they're looking for is they're looking for the low-risk people. So they put this algorithm which takes account of all sorts of things like people's family connections, their background, their employment status, their answers to questions like, how often did you get into fights at school? How much do you agree with the statement? A hungry person has the right to steal. And it puts all this through the computer. And then it says, well, this person is at high risk of reoffending or at low risk. And the judge uses that in making a decision. It's not an automatic decision, but it's, it's given to the judge as a, as a factor. And there's been some very good re uh, journalism done by ProPublica showing that the algorithm in very common use is biased. It's not only... I mean, the idea is that it will be more objective than a human being, right? That The idea is that you might have a racist judge who jails all the black people, and then you've got this algorithm that says to the judge, you know, this person is at low risk of reoffending. You shouldn't send them to jail. But unfortunately, because the algorithm is using the patterns based on history, the patterns based on previous histories of previous offenders, and whether they went on to reoffend, and whether they were sent to jail, and so on, it's reproducing some of those biases. So it turns out that this algorithm is far more likely to flag up uh, a black person as likely to reoffend, as at high risk of reoffending, uh, when they do not, in fact, go on to reoffend. And conversely, they're more likely to flag up a white person as at low risk of reoffending when they do, in fact, go on to reoffend. So the, there's been quite a lot of different um, work done on these figures coming out with slightly different conclusions or with slightly different explanations. But it certainly seems clear that you can't simply say, well, look, a machine did it, therefore it's objective. Especially when what the machine is working with 
is past experience. So in the same way as a machine might say, well, look, I know this is a cat because it looks like all previous cats. A judging algorithm might say, well, I know this is a high-risk offender because it looks like all the previous high-risk offenders. And a lot of the categories that are being fed in, even if, even if they refined it so that it was just and fair and objective, all it's ever going to do is assign a probability to a person based on a population of people like them. And that is something that happens beyond the American justice system. So there are also hiring algorithms. A lot of employment agencies now will weed out applications by using a hiring algorithm, which, again, looks at the history of previous employees who turned out to be good and reliable and stay with the company. And what did they look like? Uh, it turns out they mostly didn't take much time off sick and they live near the workplace and, uh, and they don't have anything controversial on social media and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and so those people are the ones you're going to interview. Well, this is assuming that every single person behaves exactly like their typical population. Or it's not, and it's saying, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to look at you and your individual characteristics and your potential and what you might decide to do in the future. I'm just going to completely treat you like the average person in your population. And so you might not get a job because you live in the wrong place or your friends tagged you with something dodgy on social media when you were on that hen night or, or whatever it was. And is it right that those things that you have no control over should be taken into account? Um, so I'm sure it's almost time to wind up. So I would just like to end with uh, a pr proposition for you uh, that you may disagree with, which is that it's, it has great potential, but our willingness to hand over especially human judgment on human matters to big data and technology is not founded in how amazing the technology is and what it can actually do. It's more founded in the fact that we don't want to carry the can for our own decisions and we don't entirely trust ourselves or each other to make these decisions and we would rather outsource them to a machine. So my suggestion is that our willingness to trust big data says less about how trustworthy the technology is and more about our unwillingness to trust each other. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, plenty to uh, think about there. So, uh, Solfica, if you want to uh, give us your thoughts. Sure. Um, thank you. Um, like a lot of people, when I first started thinking about big data, um, I thought, yeah, great, this is fantastic. And then I started talking to people who actually know what they're talking about. And um, one of them is um, a, uh, allegedly Germany's, I'm based in Germany, um, uh, Germany's first professor of big data, uh, a guy called Matthias Hagen. And I can't remember how it came about, but in the interview, for some reason, I must have asked him, so do you have a smartphone or how do you use your smartphone or whatever? And um, how did he respond? Any guesses? He doesn't have one. Of course he doesn't have one. And he's not the first person to have come up with one of these revelations in an interview. I've spoken to other internet experts who don't use email. And it makes me wonder, maybe there's something that they know that I don't know. Now, uh, just a little bit more background, because um, he... He doesn't have a smartphone, or didn't at that point, purely because he had a, a dumb phone that still worked. 
Right? And he said, I only talk to my wife and uh, I drive to work, so there's no time to read newspapers. Uh, you know, um, so I don't have a smartphone. Uh, but he could still do his work. And it was interesting work in sort of search analysis, et cetera. So that's that just at uh, the, the top. For me, um, yeah, so then doubt started to creep in. And for me, big data and, uh, as Amanda was saying also, artificial intelligence, these two huge buzzwords that we have today, they are incredibly important for all of us, and they will really shape everything that we do, whether we like it or not. And if we don't like it, we ha do have the power to do something about it. It's one of those few things in life where we can actually do things because this is all about us. It's, this is not the Internet of Things, it's the Internet of Us. Every little thing you do digitally is influencing the future of big data and artificial intelligence. And for me, this is really important because this is so much about the fact that we are scared to death of death, and in fact life. You know, big data for me is all about immortality. There are people out there, you know, the... To, steal a phrase from somebody who probably shouldn't be quoted anymore, um, the, the, the sociopaths of Silicon Valley, they are all trying to head towards a state of immortality. Um, they want to overcome death. Why do they want to overcome death? They're using big data and artificial intelligence in order to, uh, well, it's increasing power that they can gain um, through overcoming death. It's uh, the next upgrade uh, for humanity, uh, for Homo sapiens. Uh, if you haven't already read it, read Homo Deus by um, Yovel Hari, uh, Yovel um, Noah Yohari, uh, Harari, sorry, I can't pronounce the surname. Um, so that's that. I'm racing through my, my points because we all influence what the technologists are thinking about the future, and we're sort of either proving or disproving their theories about immortality and about these these theories that were set up long a long time ago. I mean, artificial intelligence has been around for, for, for decades, and we've been trying to prove a way to make it work. And so the next point is this. In terms of artificial intelligence, there is a, a mantra that you'll hear time and again, and that is that technology is neutral. Um, I heard this most recently at the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting. It's a meeting of Nobel Laureates and young scientists. And Vint Cerf was there. Um, he's not a Nobel Laureate, but he's a winner of the A.M. Turing Award, uh, which is an award for computer science. Um, and um, he said, well, you know, if you're talking about self-driving cars or autonomous cars or whatever, um, you may get into sort of certain moral or ethical areas where it could be a bit difficult to decide. You know, if uh, a car comes to a crossing and the car has to decide whether it should, um, and it needs to swerve for some reason. There's a bunch of kids crossing the road. They're, I know what uh, the Germans called smombies, so just, you know, walking across the road uh, looking at their smartphones and not at the road. Um, uh, and so the car has to decide, should I protect the owner of the car or should I try to protect the kids or one of the kids? And um, so Vince Cerf, who, uh, if you don't know, he's uh, currently Google's chief internet evangelist, and it's all in the name, believe me. Um, he said, well, technology is always neutral, um, and uh, so long as you put as the highest priority that, no, that all life should be spared, that there were no life should be lost, I forget exactly how he phrased it, then you'll, you'll be okay. But there are two problems with this. Um, Artificial intelligence is based on binary thoughts, as Tamandra was saying. You know, it's, sort of, it's how computer technology works. 
digital computer technology works today. You either have an on or off state, zero or one, up or down. There are no gray zones, and we humans are full of gray zones. We have lots of doubt, lots of moral quandaries we don't really know. We might make a decision and then three seconds later or a split second later go, oh, no, I don't really know. That was wrong or whatever. Can I change my mind or whatever? By that point, the car's already hit the kid. And the other thing is this, in terms of neutral technology, as soon as a programmer sits down to, um, to program anything, now I'm not a programmer, but I've sort of tinkered with HTML and PHP for 15 years. I finally managed it. As soon as I sit down at the computer, I'm making decisions about what I want my website to look like, how I want it to be usable, by whom, do I care that Google does not respect non-mobile sites? I have to make that decision. I do not care that Google is not going to rank my site highly. Fortunately, there aren't many people called Zulfi Garabani. Um, so I've got to wrap up now. Anyway, um, that's pretty much covered it. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, I could go on for ages. I think there are, there are huge benefits, and we will hear them later. There are huge benefits, but there are also huge ethical issues that we need to start talking about yesterday really huge ethical issues. And there's just one final thing, if I can say. Um, because when we start talking about ethical issues and moral judgments and all the rest of it, the technology industries, wherever they are, whether they're in biomedicine or just internet, whatever, they always talk about you know, laws and regulations hinder innovation. And my point is they should hinder innovation. We need to draw back, we need to slow down and really have a good think about where we're going. Because at the moment, anybody can do what they like. And there are great benefits, but there are actually huge, huge problems with big data. And we need to be talking about it now. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Will, cheer me up. I'm getting really down on big data. <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure I'm going to quite manage to do that. Um, do firstly, I should say that... To the microphone, actually. Just move um, the microphone as a fact-checker, whenever I hear the term big data. You know, fact checkers aren't people with a very high tolerance for buzzwords and big data is one of the worst buzzwords conceived in the last decade or so. So I hear this term and I think I'm pretty sure that what I'm going to hear next is going to be nonsense. And usually it's, I'm, I'm right to have that cynical assumption. And one of the delights of reading Tamandra's book is that it's not nonsense. It's one of the rare things I've read about big data which is actually sensible and readable. And I, I really genuinely recommend it. Um, she's done a good job of laying out uh, both a meaningful definition of big data, and goodness knows we needed one. Half of these conversations feel like that there's some cackling, manic genius in a marketing department in some technology company somewhere, giggling over having invented this phrase a decade ago, and the rest of us now trying to explain it for them. Um, so it's nice to have a sensible conversation about big data, and we have Tamandra to thank for that. Um, one of the things that I read about the role of data in our lives at the moment that has always stuck with me is the idea that data is the pollution of the information age. It's the thing that is a side effect of things you want to do anyway. So getting on the tube or driving here and being recognized by an AMPR camera or paying for something with your credit card creates this pollution of a trail of data about you. And you may or may not want that to happen, but it's just a byproduct of living in the information age. And that is not a neutral thing. It's actually a really dramatic redistribution of power from you to 
the people who hold that data or the people who can access that data, um, which, uh, as we've learned in recent years, includes governments uh, very often. And it's redistributing power in two interesting ways, I think. One is the obvious one, of privacy. There are things you know about yourself that you may or may not want to share with other people, which are now shared by default with at least some other people. The other is that there are things other people know about you that you may not know about yourself, which I think is really fascinating. And that can be everything from being able to infer medical conditions to your shopping habits and what they tell you about how you fit into wider groups in society and lots and lots of other things. So power is shifting around us, and that is always, always something important. One application of that at the moment in our field, um, which we're very often dealing with official statistics, is the future of the census. Every 10 years, we're asked to fill in a big, long form which asks us questions, ranging from who are you and where do you live and who do you live with to what is your religion and what is your sexuality and other very personal questions. And the idea is to phase out the census. And in order to phase out the census, which is the one really canonical way we have of knowing who lives in this country and what we're like, the statisticians are looking for other sources of information. And so they're now experimenting with, can we infer from GP records and school records and possibly even things like credit card data, who lives here and what they're like and what kinds of people they are. So big data is really moving things very far from a model where you know what you are handing your data over for and what is going to be done with it. And in some ways, it's creating opportunities. You know, the ability to understand who lives here in real time, to learn about the patterns of change is hugely important. Of the last census, we radically revised our estimates of the number of immigrants living in the country because actually the estimates between censuses had not been accurate. So the idea of being able to keep track on those kinds of topics more accurately and more quickly and with a greater level of local detail could be very powerful in making the decisions we make together as a country. But, as we know, there's a massive black box here that Tamandra referred to. This is not data where you can follow the track of this is what I provided and then this is a statistician who has a sort of set of independence and I know what they do with it and I know how they calculate it and I can judge it for myself. In the way we traditionally, traditionally that's the wrong word for it, but in the way we manipulate big data very often, we are feeding things into algorithms where the logic of what they're doing is not always known. And for a fact checker, that's a very odd situation to be in. Fact checking is all about giving people information you can judge for yourself. So we always give sources, and we always explain this is the alternative set of sources, make your own mind up. With big data, with machine learning algorithms, that's not quite in play anymore. The machine is inferring patterns, and we don't quite know on what basis. And so we are going to have to ask ourselves the questions, what does trust mean if it's not the ability to judge the things that have been done on our behalves and why they have been done and what those outcomes are? On the other hand, that's the really big opportunity of big data because suddenly it lets us move from a situation where in the scientific method that has got us to where we are, we have by and large been theory-led. You come up with a hypothesis about the world and you try to test it. 
what we are seeing in the big data age is more and more the opportunity to come up with lots of information about how the world is and effectively let machines come up with pattern identification without that prior step of forming hypotheses around it. Now, that's an incredibly uh, simplified and arguably simplistic um, view of it. But there is a fundamental shift there, which that represents truly to some extent. Um, and I think that's an amazing opportunity to learn more about the world much more quickly before. But the underlying remarkable thing that has happened in the last 10 years is not that uh, we have that capability, it's that power has shifted, and we should be very wary of that. Okay, thanks, Bill. Alex. Thanks. So, I'm somebody who's spent quite a lot of time grappling with very large data sets in the days when uh, having places to store them was much more complicated. Um, I think it's interesting uh, to see what drives the fascination with, with big data now and why it's suddenly uh, appeared in, in public. Um, and certainly, speaking to some other people that uh, I know in similar areas and, and the head of my own company, there's a great deal of interest in uh, what it can offer, uh, both public and in industry. Um, and I think th there's two things that I'd say that really become quite clear when people want to start using big data or want to start taking advantage of it, and that's, A, uh, very often there's a, a, a lack of understanding of, of what it really is offering you, um, and uh, it also very quickly becomes apparent that really the key to utilising anything like big data is, is being able to integrate lots of different pieces of information together. So uh, integrating more and more different aspects of, uh, of life. And particularly within companies, uh, it pretty quickly becomes apparent that there's a lot of structural changes that you'd simply need to do if you want to achieve that. And uh, it's quite a complicated process to, uh, to try and exploit. So very often, you start out with the process and say, I think I'm going to use big data to learn something. What you actually understand is you really need to uh, rebuild your whole company from scratch and uh, rethink your whole strategy. Um, but really, the, the basis of big data, in the same way that you should regard any, any other data, is um, it's still using the same conventional analytical statistical ideas. You're looking for trends. You're looking for patterns. Um, and what you're really doing with what most people consider big data is just taking advantage of the huge computational power that you have available to you now to, to ask those questions in ever more detail. So you can start to add more and more levels of information about something. And so there might not necessarily be a trend uh, uh, apparent to a human, but if you have the capability to consider 5,000 things at the same time related to one particular point, then you can very quickly start to see patterns embedded within them. Um, and so this is probably maybe linking back to the, the does size matter. Um, so this is why it is big data, the plus side of being really big, is uh, uh, the more data you have, the more links you could probably find. Um, or the way that scientists would normally look at it, you'd say the more questions that you could ask. Um, of course, the downside of, of being big is the bigger you get, the more you lose control on, on what the actual data is and what the inherent quality is as well. Um, 
and so I think this le leads nicely back into, into to sort of Will's point there, really. Um, when you move away from uh, understanding uh, the hypothesis that's been generated from the end, end points, when you find a pattern and you have no real mi way of understanding how that pattern has been driven, then finding a pathway all the way back to the beginning so that you can actually structure uh, maybe an experiment to determine whether or not this trend is, is valid or not becomes much more complicated. Um, I think uses of big data up until now have really been very powerful in population-based uh, studies, so looking for trends of people in a larger scale. Um, but particularly important for, uh, for us to consider is as this data gets bigger and bigger, then uh, the more information that is available, the more the smaller, in effect, the population size needs to be for you to find that trend. And so ultimately, the level of anonymity within that population data is decreasing daily and will continue to decrease. So uh, at the moment, you could shield yourself into thinking that maybe uh, all of your mobile phone data uh, is packaged together. And so there is no means of understanding whether or not uh, anybody <coughs> could identify you in amongst this population. As the data increases and as the different number of variables increase, then ultimately that will condense down, and so it will will become more more and more possible for somebody to uh, understand you as a person. Um, in particular, with with healthcare, um, this is something that's come come up quite regularly, and obviously it's an interest for a, for a Municor. Um, you really have a bit of a, a quid pro quo here because the more information you can offer up about yourself, then if you were to be ill, the more likely it is that there might be a, a tailored therapy to, to help you get better. Um, but of course, the downside of that is the more you give up, the more you, uh, you might not necessarily be able to control what that data is used for in other purposes. So be it insurance or your mortgage or uh, whether or not you're very employable. Um, but I guess the one thing I'll just finish up, finish up with on, on this is in, in biology or biochemistry or in general the, the pharmaceutical industry, if you want to conduct an experiment that has any effect on uh, an animal, um, and we're included in those, um, <laughs> then you need to design your experiment and you need to seek bioethical approval. So typically that would involve convening a, a research ethics committee that will be a combination of scientists and, and lay people and, and, and uh, the idea would be you would seek to justify what the cost is to uh, to that uh, animal uh, against what the information you think you can extract. And really, up until now, computational science has been something that has uh, been very much outside of that scope of science. And I, th I think really um, where big data is pushing us is understanding that computational scientists should probably be treated uh, and in the same fashion as... Uh, as other scientists, and that you need to balance uh, regulation so that you have, you can, you know, carefully marry the potential for good against uh, the fundamental values of the society. So. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Alex. You've all spoken perfectly to time. We have exactly 50% of the session left. And it's your turn now. So, do, can I see some hands for questions and comments? Oh, crikey. 
This is a right, right I'm, going to, I'm going to arbitrarily go up that side and down the other side. Sorry, folks, I'll start here. Uh, is there a microphone anywhere? Oh, it's just coming down the hill. It's like the start of game, game for a laugh, if anybody remembers that. Anyway, <laughs> nobody knows. Uh, first comment, uh, you've already mentioned anonymisation someone. I was at a talk by someone from the um, census, they actually said we produced results and we actually deliberately designed the data so that it becomes anonymous and actually sw maybe switch one or, one, one or two around. This, I'm very happy for my data to be used for things like medical search, whatever, some transport patterns, but I would like it to be anonymised. So uh, uh, sorry, I'm happy for my data to be used, but I want it to be anonymised, which I don't think it always is. My other point is how do you actually use the data? It's fine, there's this, this huge amount of data. If you actually want to extract it, there's some very good sites. There's open data, which, it, which, it, which is very good. But I'm basically a spreadsheet person. If you produce data, I want it on a spreadsheet that I can play around, I can analyse it the way I want to analyse it. The trouble with a lot of these websites, you can get the data off, but if you actually want to download something, the form that you can manipulate it, it doesn't seem to be possible. It's always someone, someone else that does. And having looked at virgin media's uh, algorithms as to which programmes I want to watch, algorithms don't always get it right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right there in the group. Hi. Um, I think my comment um, it worries me that whenever we uh, gather more data, it inevitably leads to greater control. And I think that's been the history through humankind. Um, somebody mentioned governments and so on. Um, so there's a new word I want to introduce. Um, before I do that, my, my tiny example is I've lived in this country for 20 years, had mortgages, credit cards, happily paid everything. One tiny issue, and I now cannot get a loan in this country because of one tiny issue. And I should point out I'm a professional accountant and so on, so there's a good history. So because of the data that's being collected on me, I fail at one tiny little hurdle that, that people, humans in banks or mortgage institutions are unwilling to look at it and override. So the word I want to introduce that surprisingly no one's mentioned is freedom. And I think through the gathering of this data, it worries me that we're moving towards more controls and therefore less freedom. And I think freedom is at the basis of the human condition. Okay, yes, just keep going up that side. Um, just kind of following on from the first question, and maybe actually the second as well, is it actually ever possible to have anonymity as an option, as a fundamental option with the, uh, the ever-increasing complexity of the data? Can we ever be absolutely anonymous with that? Thank you. Good question. Uh, keep going up. That's very good. Thank you. Hi, I, I'm, I'm Mike Vay, Research Machine Learning in Government. Um, the uh, we talked a lot about supervised learning in machine learning, which is when you put a label on data and you want to then predict that label from future data where you don't have that label like a cat. Um, there's another type of machine learning which we don't talk about so much called unsupervised learning. We don't know it's a cat, we just try and give structure to data. We try and understand what could be what and, and put it in bins and groups. And this is going into organizing things like language, trying to analyze the whole web, and it links it very much into things like Will are doing and fact-checking, and in fact, there's a lot of academic work on fact-checking algorithms and trying to build automated systems and decision support for this. Yet, there's also academic work that shows that this can put in very, very difficult forms of bias in search of worldviews and politics, ideas of what links to what, um, and, and what's more important than what, and, and, and what links are valid and what links aren't valid. Uh, and I wonder, 
in that kind of zone, if that's the kind of way we're heading and the way we're organizing information, do we need a politics of algorithms, a politics of data, and how would, how would that look like and what would we need to get there? Yes. Thank you. Um, so, uh, great introductions, and uh, I also enjoyed Tamandra's book, and uh, uh, congratulations on that. Um, uh, I, I want to pick up on a, um, a point about well, why, why do we call it big, which was um, sort of touched on by the panelists. And I think it is worth um, stressing this point that I think Will touched on about um, hypothesis-led research versus uh, kind of just information, really, and seeing what uh, clusters and conclusions come out. Because that's really why people go on about big data. What they're getting at is that something happens, something strange happens when you get lots of data. I mean, it, it comes from a paper from Microsoft, um, I don't know, some maybe a decade ago, actually, where they discovered that tweaking and tuning algorithms uh, on small amounts of data, the amount of work it took to get kind of quality results versus just having loads more data and having a less efficient algorithm, they found that they were able to deduce things using this, the latter scenario. But of course, that, what that leads to, the, the, the criticism I would have of that, and I think it's touched on by Will's comments about um, hypothesis-led, is that you then start to not care why you kind of then start to say, well, okay, we've got this conclusion, it's made us more efficient, we just need more data, and we're becoming obsessed with the data, you know, so everywhere, everybody's trying to set up a big data department or restructure their companies, as you describe, and all this kind of thing. Um, and we also become obsessed with numbers. Numbers somehow become the truth, rather than the hypothesis or the narrative or how, how we arrived at it. Um, and I have to say, I work in big data, so I've kind of changed my view on this as well over the last couple of years. I was kind of thinking that you could compartmentalize and you could sort of have some areas where, you know, hey, what's the problem? But I'm increasingly seeing that there, there don't seem to be any areas where there are no problems. People are so obsessed now with the, the data, the quantity and numbers at the expense of everything else. I'm starting to see a world now where the, it is just a problem. Um, no solutions. I'm just looking forward to your next book, Timandra, <laughs> where you know <laughs> you help us out of that one. Okay, I'll take two more. So, is there any more on that side? Let's start working our way back down this side. Anybody's basically waving their hand. Thank you. Thank you for the talks. Um, two issues I'd like to address. Uh, the first is that I think that big data does matter as a size when it comes to ownership uh, because to have petabytes, zettabytes, etc., you need lots of money, uh, lots of space, lots of energy to store it and to have it. So if I need to access something within this big data, um, I of course need lots of money and access to it, with, so uh, it comes to power, really. And the second issue, it's about the outsource of decisions that Timandra was talking about. Um, and I think we are not only ready to outsource decisions, but also ready to outsource ourselves, um, as an example of the war, drone, war armed drones that are being used. Uh, not only by the US Army, but the UK Army as well. Um, 
Uh, so to protect ourselves from death, uh, we outsource our soldiers and uh, make them as drones, armed drones. Um, so uh, yeah, as it comes to the immortality thing that Zofika was talking about. Okay, Thank you. just one more maybe just behind. Yeah, and then we'll come back to the panel. So you talked a lot about sort of data generated as a byproduct of doing things and mobile phone data. But I wonder, is there something around like missing data? And is there a pre an appreciation that actually, you know, governments are making more decisions based on data, but is that leaving people out? And, and can we kind of see uh, a, a world where people are much more savvy about the data that's generated and maybe communities getting together to generate data so that they can have a voice and so that they can influence policy making. Just thinking about credit cards, you know, you, you go out and generate data to, to make that small bit that was the wrong decision kind of become even smaller. Okay, good question. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is gonna go across the panel from left to right. So just don't <laughs> attempt to answer all those. We've already had about seven or eight different questions. Uh, so just pick out two or three that you want to uh, um, sort of have a go at um, for a couple of minutes. Uh, Tamandra. If I could answer all those questions, I'll have another book, I think. <laughs> Fantastic points and questions, though. Really, really interesting. Okay, um, so let's look at a couple. Um, the, okay, the missing data question, I think, is very interesting and relates kind of back to this first point about open data. So... You know, partly as a response, I think, to this idea that other people are collecting our data and they have control over it and we don't. There is this movement for open data, and the idea is that, well, you know, if, if governments and companies are collecting data on us, we should have access to the data and be able to uh, hold them to account or to use it for our own purposes. And, you know, there's some very good, very interesting work being done to make that practical. And... Uh, a lot of people do make the same complaint as you, that you exercise your freedom of information rights and say, I want this data set. And I've heard stories of people getting in the post pieces of paper which are photocopies of spreadsheets and trying to turn that into something you could use yourself and analyse yourself would, would just be a nightmare. Um, so, so that is one movement, is people saying, well, actually, it, if it works both ways, if we can have access to the data as well, then we can somehow redress that balance of power a bit and I think there's some interesting stuff happening there um, and part of that is precisely about the missing data the fact that one of the illusions that you get from big data is what they call n equals all so in an experiment you might have you know n equals 13 I've got 13 zebra fish or whatever or n equals a thousand I surveyed a thousand people and they talk about n equals all meaning you know we have the complete population in our data set but you never do you never do. I mean, you could say, oh, well, you can't use cash on the buses anymore, so we have a complete data set of everyone who rides the buses because people swipe their cards. But you don't because some people don't pay and they ride the buses or, you know, you, it's never as complete as you like to think. And the ease of gathering things through smartphones, for example, means that you think, oh, well, we've got everybody, but you haven't. you just got everybody that uses those particular kinds of smartphone. Uh, and there is some move to try and redress that by being aware of the limitations and, uh, and, and even of people yeah, going out to try and generate their own data. 
Now, one of the problems with this is I, I had quite an interesting conversation about a year ago with some people who work in America with government data. And they were saying, well, the problem is, yeah, we're collecting all this great health data from wearables and people's you know, heart data and everything. But it's only certain types of people in America that wear those things and upload their data. And they're mostly rich white kids. Uh, and in fact, the people in America are in most danger of having heart attacks and cardiovascular disease are probably the poorer black people um, for a mix of economic and possibly genetic reasons. So they said, so what we really want is we want, you know, a complete, we want, we want to be able to do this for everybody so we can actually get some useful information and be able to predict heart attacks. So we have a vision as a government where everybody is wearing a wearable and everybody's heart data is being uploaded to one big data set. I like, well, I see where you're coming from, but you're just saying that you want the government to know when every citizen's heart is beating a little faster. Does that not worry you at all? So, so I think there's a kind of tension there that it's great that people are starting to recognise that actually this data set is not complete and it's bigger, but it is lower quality, as we were hearing, that you, you, get, less, you get less control over the quality. So I think there's some interesting stuff there, but I, I also think it, the idea that just having access to the data or just contributing your own data then gives you power isn't necessarily true because it depends who's going to do what with the data. I mean, it also clashes somewhat with the anonymity problem, which is that however anonymous the data is, and, and there are some very clever statistical tricks. So, for example, if you look up school records, you can't identify individual school kids, however small the school, because they adjust the the statistics to make it impossible. But nevertheless, if I had three or four data sets that you existed in, your postcode, uh, something about your your phone or your travel records, maybe one other thing, it wouldn't be hard if I was technically savvy for me to find you by triangulation. And that's one of the inherent problems. You learn amazing things by combining different types of data. But one of the things that you can easily learn is who a, who a person is. And I don't think that is something that is completely technically solvable. I think it is just, it then becomes an issue of accepting, okay, look, somebody could track me down. So then the question is, who is this person and what are they doing with my data? And how are they using it? And sometimes then the, the fact that they may be able to identify me as an individual is less important than the fact that they have already decided that everybody in my postcode is at high risk of something, and therefore they're going to intervene in my postcode. I'll shut up and pass that. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, thanks also from, from me for all those uh, excellent comments. Uh, and I fear that I'm going to just ramble and go another rant. Um, I, uh, I like the, the, uh, the comment about being obsessed with numbers. Uh, and as a, uh, a journalist who, I mean, I've been doing this far too long. If anybody's got a better job out there, please tell me. Um, I've, uh, you know, started in with just tape recorders and all the rest of it. And uh, now I'm, um, for want of a better job, as I say, a multimedia journalist. I do everything. I carry a huge rucksack with me. I do mobile reporting and all the rest of it and blah, 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 blah. And at the end of that, all that I have at the end of the day is, yeah, but what are the clicks? What's the reach? Um, what's the this and the that? And 
I have these flaming arguments in the office, and I probably shouldn't say it in public, but there you go. Um, about, yes, but what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean that we have so and so many followers following our followers, and they're doing this and that, and you know? So we are obsessed with our numbers because we do have this underlying fear of, as I say, um, of life and everything around us, and we think that numbers are very definite. So we have problems with even, you know, the use of big data in democratic situations, in, 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 in elections, as we're seeing, you know. There's a lot of work being done in this area as well. How can we basically mess up elections by just being focused on what certain subsections of the society will do and, you know, predetermining voter habits? And this is what Tamanda was saying about heart rates. You know, just imagine, you know, we get these huge new sets of data and then they get released, how would they then perhaps influence further sets of data? You, know, you just create panic and then heart rates would go up again. Is it a true representation of what's actually happening out there? Maybe not. Um, uh, the other issue that I uh, liked, that I think we need to talk about a little bit more is, is this issue of, of, of power. Um, when the internet was set up by, you know, uh, wonderful people like Vince Cerf, I mentioned before, uh, before and Bob Kahn, who set up the, the basics of the internet, the idea, the architecture of the internet, which is basically how we have big data and artificial intelligence, all based on the networking of our world, as we know. It was supposed to be a decentralized network. And what we're having now is a recentralization of all of our information, our data, and our power, and our money. All this money and power is being sucked up, hoovered up by a 0.00001% of people of a very particular um, um, background. And we've heard the phrase, I forget who said it, but, you know, um, the idea of most of these people being, you know, uh, white, rich, middle-class people, they're usually men as well. And the drivers of technology usually tend to be, uh, uh, you know, white men. And so even there, even if we say, okay, well, you know, they've got the education, they could do this, we're already missing out on half of our population, women, who are not really integral to te the technology industries. There's a big problem there. And all that power is being centralised there. The one thing I want to say just to wrap up is the discussion around big data and AI and all the rest of it seems, from my perspective, still far too focused on the now. And we need to be projecting further into the future. So just one thing I want to mention here is that, you know, the, the idea of bioelectronics, which is something that um, GlaxoSmithKline is working on. These are tiny, they're medicines, but they're actually devices that will wrap themselves around nerves in your body and, and change the way your, uh, uh, your nerves function, perhaps repair things. Um, these medicines or devices can be used or controlled remotely, and they will feed into ev even greater sets of data. The question there is who controls that data? Uh, and the red card. Yes. Thank you. I control the red card. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Alex, uh, one curveball for you, Alex, is because we've had a lot of discussion about Oyster cards and smartphones and whatever, but sure. if you could just give us a flavour of how Immunicor would use. Or, or, kind of data you're using, where it's coming from, and what you're using it for, that's kind of broadened the discussion a bit as well. Sure. Um, so probably most powerful is to talk about maybe a few of the sets that exist out there. Um, so there's something called a, the TCGA data set, which is a data set 
generated by the National Institutes of Health in America. Um, and that is uh, essentially using something called next generation sequencing. So that's looking at uh, the genomes at the, at the sequence level information of individuals. I think that's about 25,000 samples now going across different tumor, tumor sets. Um, you can add that to something else called the, the GTEx portal. So that's something that has an equivalent size set looking at all different normal tissues and looking, uh, so taking each different organ in your body and looking at what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off. Um, and so those data sets you can combine in, in one space. Um, just touching quickly on the point raised by the gentleman here. So that is quite an important point, what data type and what you need to do to make them compatible with what you want to, uh, how you want to analyze them. So also just picking up from the lady uh, further up there, there's, there's two distinct points when you're playing in this space. There's, there's storage, as Demand said, it's, it's very cheap to do storage. Um, uh, and then there's actually the power to ask questions. So that's the analytics. And what you really need a lot of computing power for is the analytics. So it doesn't take an awful lot of power to, to, to store all of that information, all of this TCGA, all of the GTEx. That's, that could all go on my personal computer. Um, if I want to ask to simultaneously look at every single one of those pieces of information and understand whether there's a trend, then I'm asking a computer to do an awful lot of things, and therefore that's where it becomes quite limiting in terms of uh, what your, uh, your, your uh, capacity and what, how much it would cost you to build an uh, environment that allows you to ask those questions. Um, so th those are probably some of the main, main efforts that uh, Immunicore links to. Um, so that's really taking those kind of data sets and then linking them in with our own data sets. We have a very large, large amount of data on, on uh, uh, individual differences between, say, cancer cells and normal cells. And then we'd look for commonality between those sets and then understand, okay, well, I can see this difference here. What would that reflect on a general population? So that, that might well steer you towards one direction or another. Yeah. I think what the one thing that I'll just, just very briefly pick up on quite a, quite a few points here really is it's uh, quality. So the bigger you get the set, and you know, so when I take that TCGA data set, I have no idea who ran that experiment. I don't know what that, how that data was really formed. And to be honest, with an awful lot of new technologies, it's quite difficult to understand how a false detection has been decided. So whenever you perform any experiment, you need to understand at what point you cannot determine whether or not that's a random occurrence or whether that's actually something you can record, something called false detection. And whenever you start adding anything together in any walk of life, any data set, you will always start adding those false reports together as well. And it, uh, essentially the way of thinking about false reports, because it, it's not real, it's nonsense, the chances of it being a very different piece of nonsense in each one of those examples is very high. Therefore the additive effect of anything false becomes much more dominant the bigger a data set comes. So in effect, the larger you ever make something, the, the more rubbish that is instilled within it, and therefore the more of a headache it becomes for someone like Will to actually <laughs> figure out what on earth uh, the, the inherent false rate would be when, when uh, you develop an algorithm that says so-and-so is linked to so and so. Will. Thanks. Um, it's an interesting place to pick up from, actually, because this idea of missing data is a very powerful and important one. 
on the one hand, Andrew Dillnot, when he took over the UK Statistics Authority, used to say, all of our numbers are wrong, but some of them are useful. By and large, it's impossible to measure anything really important um, completely precisely. Um, and big data is actually a way of bridging that gap in some ways. The census has an enormous problem with certain groups of people who are less likely to answer it than others. Um, and uh, young men in cities being a good example of easily undercounted. So they have to follow up with top-up surveys and check surveys to try to make sure that they're adjusting the numbers they ultimately publish to accurately reflect the population. If we were able to use things like school records and GP records and mobile phone records and goodness knows what else, maybe we would catch more of those populations more accurately. So there's an opportunity there. But as the lady said, there's also a risk of the people who fall through the gaps. Um, and that's a risk that exists in the way we use data at the moment. It's a risk that exists in big data, and it leads us neatly onto the question of do we need a politics of algorithms, to which the answer is absolutely yes. This is about power. This is about freedom, as the gentleman said. If you want to um, understand who is going to have influence over your life in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you need to understand where the accountability for the gathering and use of data lies. At the moment, that's simply not clear. If you spend money at your bank, you get a statement every month. Here's everybody who spent money from your account, and here's what it was spent on, and here's when and where it was spent. Just imagine if every time somebody accessed your medical records, there was a statement which you received saying, here's who accessed your medical records, here's where they accessed it, and here's why. Suddenly, the power over your records would change dramatically, even though the way they're used wouldn't change at all. So I think we need to start thinking about how we can push accountability for the use and gathering of data back towards the rest of us. And in the meantime, you might want to think about whether you want to pay cash. Um, the gentleman at the back talked about supervised and unsupervised learning and the role of automation in fact-checking. This is an area where Fullfax has been doing a lot of work, so I'll just say if you are interested in that, firstly, there's a little robot on the Fullfax stool downstairs. Do come and have a chat with us if you're interested. But we also published a roadmap for automated fact-checking at fullfact.org slash automated. Basically, it's become easier and easier and easier to monitor everything politicians are saying, which is just returning the favour, if you think about it now. <laughs> and it's about time we started using that ability to monitor every time they repeat claims we previously fact-checked, which is the technology Full Fact's working on now, or every time they make claims that aren't true, automatically detecting them, which is the next wave of work that we've started prototyping. Well, that's tricky, but it's not impossible. But I think it's also a good um, opportunity to just illustrate what we mean by big data. We have, I think, everything said in the House of Commons for the last five years in a database. And we have the last two years of newspaper contents leaving outside the sports news. And that adds up to about 70 million individual sentences. And that's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's a completely trivial amount of data. It's four DVDs. It fits on my laptop. And I can query it in milliseconds. It's not big data, even though it sounds like it. So that's one of the reasons big data gets so exaggerated. Um, we need to kind of understand that that, although it's interesting and potentially a massive impact on society, is not the game we're in when we're talking about algorithms making decisions about us independently. They're two different shifts of power. 
Uh, okay, I'm going to come out again. I've got a question I want to throw into it. It's kind of two questions. One is the question of the, the data dredge where you, you have so much data that you can find spurious correlations all over the place um, and, and, and what we can do to, to identify those. And secondly, why do those spurious correlations always involve eating bacon? What's wrong with eating bacon? Why is it always bacon that gets it? Anyway, right, okay, so I'll start at the front here. I should start at the back, shouldn't I? Never mind. <laughs> uh, th thanks for a very interesting discussion so far. Um, I'm an astronomer, and so we've been using data, big data in astronomy for a long time. We didn't use the word, but we have data that we collect from telescopes. We also generate data from models and simulations. And so this is just picking up on the uh, question of how you regulate use of algorithms. I mean, as a, when I'm asked to referee a scientific paper in astronomy, you do get papers where someone has a very complicated model, they've run a simulation, they got a result, and they send it to me and they say, look at this interesting result. But they don't explain how what they put in led to that result. They just ran it through a supercomputer and this is what came out. So I'd reject that paper and I'd send them away to come back, understand what you've got, and then, then it becomes interesting. And I think even in the world of big data, I know the things you were talking about are very complicated, but you can go back through the algorithm and you can work out, even statistically, what it is that the de decision-making process has led to. And if you don't, that's a decision. So you've decided not to try and understand in detail what led to it. That takes time and money. But I think in terms of regulation, you could demand that if someone's planning to use an algorithm to make an important decision about healthcare or something like that, they're only allowed to use it if they show they understand it. And that, that could be a way to regulate it. A, a separate point on the ethics of, of using these algorithms is, as someone mentioned already, the energy required to run these uh, data centers to do the analytics is going to be contributing to climate change and presumably more and more in the future. So again, you could say, is the thing that you're hoping to learn from this data worth it? Is it, is it worth a ton of carbon dioxide or a, a million tons of carbon dioxide? Uh, yeah, the irony of supercomputers to try to understand climate change causing climate change. <laughs> right, yes. Hi, um, I'm, I'm Emma, I'm a computational biologist PhD student. Um, so I've been using a lot of publicly available um, uh, big data sets uh, during the course of my PhD, and uh, they've always been very well regulated by bodies like the, the Human Tissues Authority. There are very clear rules on what you can and can't do and what um, how, how things need to be anonymized. Um, but um, I think a really good example of uh, that not happening at the moment um, was a couple of months ago. Um, a lot of friends of mine were affected by uh, an OKCupid web scrape, where um, all answers to questions on OKCupid were um, publicly uh, released, um, and that includes some incredibly personal uh, information. Um, and usernames were attached, and the only reason they didn't include profile pictures is because they didn't have the, the server space to do so. Um, so I was wondering, uh, it's been touched on already, but what are the rules currently in place at a national and international level um, to regulate, um, uh, effectively regulate um, ethics around big data release? Okay, uh, so keep passing back, so, yeah. I wanted to comment on uh, Zulfikar's 
a soliloquy about um, all of this being driven by a fear of death <laughs> and um, the sociopaths of Silicon Valley and so on. Um, so I think all of that is quite wrong, but I think it's an interesting claim to make and maybe an interesting one to hear you try and unpack. Um, I disagree with you. Uh, I think that had you spent significant time building uh, artificial intelligence software or big data, you'd realize that it's built for much of the same reason as all other human enterprise. Mm, there's competition. Uh, maybe male dominance competition in commerce is, is the most powerful factor involved in Silicon Valley. It's a very macho place. It's driven largely by money and not philosophy. There's a kind of outsider's view that there are all these nerds who are trying to avenge the jocks that beat them up in the locker rooms and get to some kind of, you know, I don't know, parad paradisical version of the Matrix. That's all nonsense. Um, but nevertheless, I think we arrive at the same, maybe, uh, concerns about the future and the extent to whatever is driving that clearly is driving itself and is doing it rather deftly outside of regulation or control of governments and uh, really without much oversight. Technology moves far faster than the dalliards that we elect to regulate it. So, so in the end, there's, there's definitely a concern there. Um, and so that's really my question to you. Uh, you, know, you raised a very interesting philosophical point, even if I disagree with the, the premises upon which you made it. But I think it ultimately, at the end point, uh, it ends here. Without technology, we're, we're doomed. As a species, human beings, as far as we know, are unique. We're the only species capable of staving off an extinction event, like a planetary extinction, like a global killer meteorite or a supervolcano. There's no, never been a species like that before. But it does seem that along with that, we've minted this extra threat, which comes from technology itself, potentially from artificial intelligence and so on. And so clearly, what we need to do is to shepherd technology hmm, as best as we can maximally in the, interest, in the interest of our species while avoiding all these myriad downsides. And so even if you and I, for different reasons, you know, have the same kind of concerns, what kind of regulation of control would you suggest? How do you go about regulating a Silicon Valley? Uh, okay, right. So now we're really running short of time, so people can keep their points really, really quick. So just keep going up there. Yeah, thank you. Hello. Um, I got interested in big data from the point of view of, of data journalism where there is a similar sort of discussion to what some people have talked about between a sort of opposition between objectivity and human judgment, uh, where data, you know, algorithmic generated, algorithmically generated stories, uh, news stories, for instance, in financial reporting, are thought to be more objective than any human could possibly achieve. And there's various ways that people respond to that. One is to say, well, what's so great about objectivity. One is to say, um, well, fine, we'll let the machines do the objectivity, but the hu we still need the human bit. We need the human kind of judgment somewhere and the, the human contribution. Or another way to respond to it is to say, well, maybe it's not as objective as it's claimed to be in the way that um, Tamandra was, was, was sort of arguing. I sort of think that misses the point. I think that um, associating big data in, you know, either positively or negatively, with uh, scientific, modernist ways of knowing um, is to misunderstand, actually, the, the, the more important claims that are being made by the big data evangelists, which is precisely the end of theory, the end of 
hypothesis-driven knowledge. The end of modernist science actually is what big data um, uh, is telling us is, 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 is its significance. Chris Anderson wrote um, an article to that effect in Wired um, in 2008. All, all our theories of, of, of how we understand causation in the world, uh, big data is said to make that completely irrelevant because we no longer need that. All we need to look for is patterns of correlation that will be revealed um, uh, to us. Okay, thank you. Well, what, I'm sorry, one more point. So just the, the person directly behind, that's it. And then I'm going to bring the panel back in, starting with Will and going that way. So yeah, I, I'll, 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 I'll keep it real quick. It's just a, a quick point I'd like to make. Um, as big data gets bigger, obviously, how do we test the validity of the data that's coming in? It's going to grow exponentially. I mean, an unscrupulous individual or agencies could plant data that they because they know how the system works, how it's going to be analysed, therefore jerry-rigging and something at the outcome at the other end. That was it, sorry. Okay, thank you very much for that brevity. Uh, right, so we've got about two minutes uh, max, uh, so Will. Okay, to the last gentleman, good point, well made, let me know the answer. <laughs> um, serious point on all of these questions is basically how do we come up with a sensible legislative framework, a sensible regulatory framework, and a sensible ethical framework, and those are three different things for all of this when somebody can do remarkably powerful work on their laptop in their mum's basement, to use the cliche, um, and where some of it stretches across international borders. I don't think we've begun to have that conversation seriously yet, and I don't know what it looks like to Madra Mayno more and, and Alex. Um, on, to our astronomer friend, um, you can go back to the data, you can push people to explain how they came up with an answer. Speaking as somebody who spends my whole time with my colleagues asking the government how they came up with that data and can you justify your answer, the answer, even before big data, is very often they can't. And we need to be worried about that. We need to find better ways of putting pressure back through the system. If you think about the total black box, which is the Treasury's forecast of the economy, the, tre the Department for Energy's forecast of the costs of uh, energy and how that will affect you know, our economy, our household budgets, climate change, you name it, there is an awful lot of very questionable analysis going on in government, even without the benefits of big data because of the lack of that kind of accountability pushing back and the costing of HS2 is a perfect example, the West Coast mainline, et cetera, et cetera. Um, finally, on the point about objectivity, you can only count what you have previously defined. This is an absolutely crucial thing. I'm actually, a uh, quick plug, I'm speaking in here tomorrow lunchtime on how to understand statistics. Let's take hate crimes as a perfect example, which I'll be doing tomorrow. Um, how you define a hate crime and how you define what you're measuring as a hate crime absolutely determines your conclusions about what has happened over the last few months. We must never think that what ends up in our database is the real world, is what we've decided to measure about the real world. And in those choices, there will always be huge value judgments. Okay, thank you, Will. Alex? Yeah, just to pick up on a, on a few points there. So I think there was a few questions on regulation. Um, as we mentioned, it's a human tissue authority. Uh, that takes care of a physical entity, so when you own a piece of tissue or when you have property of it, then you have to fulfil the regulations to say that you behave with it responsibly. The regulations concerning larger data sets, I believe there's some new legislation that will be due in uh, coming in in two years' time, which will start to address uh, some of the issues, and that it at least defines that 
it's not solely responsible the person that generates the data it's anybody that uses the data <laughs> so you have to show that you've 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 used it responsibly um i think really where it becomes a big problem is where you store the data so cloud-based storage is a very popular uh, route now if you look in the terms and conditions of most cloud-based storage you'll see that they reserve the right to shift that data to uh, any one of the servers within any one of the farms that they live and therefore what's the regulation there if you just simply need to store everything in Kazakhstan and then you are and you know there are data centers there um, then uh, then you can essentially bypass the regulation this is where it, it really becomes a very very big challenge because you do need international consensus um, and that never seems to be a particularly great uh, great place to seek uh, regulation but um, yeah I think that's a, that's a very valid point one thing just to pick up on the guy uh, the, the, the hat there I, I would agree I'm not too big onto the death death idea um, I think probably from where I sit in in the business debate and the thing that really drives it is uh, is the fear of missing out and so you have people with a lot of money that have paid for an awful lot of data that sits in their banks and they're convinced there's a little diamond there a diamond that they haven't found before and that they just there's just some magical little box that you press start and then it's going to give you the diamond and I think in reality what it really will drive is at least in the current space you do still need to to have an ability to to have a pathway all the way back from those trends and understand whether or not it really ever was a diamond. Okay, thanks, Alex. Zulfikar. I was just typing some notes there. Um, uh, what can I say? Okay, if it's not all about death, and my simple line is this, uh, who amongst you would not like to live a few extra uh, years, uh, extend your life, uh, not die painfully, uh, etc.? Um, if it's not all about death, why do we have medicine in the first place? We've been trying to cure things uh, for years and years and years. I agree that it's wonderful that we no longer necessarily die unless we happen to live in sub-Saharan Africa uh, from a rusty nail. That's a wonderful advancement, but, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with death, right? We should just get over it. We're all going to die. It's wonderful, okay? In fact, humanity has to die for life to continue. Uh, that's, you know, just fact. Um, the idea about this all being um, some hocus-pocus in my brain, I think you're probably right, um, because I'm a bit of a neurotic myself. Um, but what I will say is that uh, Silicon Valley technologists and evangelists have been writing about this for years and years and years. Ray Kurzweil is the one that, who is always mentioned. Uh, there are plenty of newer technologists who are on the same track as he is, who want to get into cryogenics and all the rest of it, and want to be able to upload their brains for future use and their memories, and perhaps we won't be living in these shells that we have now, but they want to be able to have some form of life in 500 years' time. The only thing is, I say, if you want to be part of that, you'll be disappointed, sorely disappointed, because immortality will no longer mean what it was back then, and then you'll want to die, except you won't be allowed to die, because you'll be needed as consumers for the marketing megalomaniacs. I'm sorry, it's the simple truth. How do you regulate this? Um, I uh, reckon, number one, politicians need to develop a bit of a spine and uh, face up to the technologists, um, be a little bit stricter with them. People like Al Gore should not be allowed to earn gazillions uh, by investing in the internet at the early stages because he's got the tap roots into that. Um, and uh, the other way to regulate it is that we all need to get active. Um, you need to think clearly about it. One last show of hands, who in the last year has not bothered to read any terms and conditions? Yeah, you see? Yeah. I'm so arrogant that I now these days fly over them because I reckon they're all the same. Of course they're not. And every time I sign up for something, I'm basically giving another piece of my life away. 
And so we all need to make choices about what we want, how we want our data to be used. And uh, as Will said, think about using cash, as I did yesterday. I haven't been back to London in five years, and I bought a SIM card. The guy said, cash or credit? I went, yeah, cash, if, you, if you'll take it. <laughs> That's me. Okay, thank you. Finally, it's about <laughs> You probably thought you looked like a drug dealer. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we we're obviously pretty much on time and can't possibly answer all those things. Yeah, we clearly, we need to start having a really big conversation about the politics of data and the ethical frameworks of data. Uh, so I'm not even going to try and start on, on that. So a couple of closing observations. Um, I think it's really interesting to raise the point that, yeah, big data kind of promised to be the end of theory. And we, there was a flush of enthusiasm when people started saying, causation is dead. We don't need causation anymore. Correlation will tell us everything. And they are slightly backing off from that, thankfully. Uh, but I think it, it remains true that big data, the, the enthusiasm for it, as well as some of the uses to which it's being put, arise from a, a kind of a sense that theory has failed us. And in a similar way, I think Silicon Valley and the way that people are going, look, we're going to get on with this, we're going to have this great technology, it's going to fix this or it's going to fix that. And people's desire for them to do that and people's willingness to throw money at them to do that arise from a sense that other ways of tackling problems have failed us, that politics has failed us, that we haven't been able to solve uh, inequalities in society by changing society politically. Therefore, maybe if we build a machine, that can solve our problems for us because it will be objective and it will have all the data and it will be terribly, terribly clever. And, and I think that's fundamentally misguided. It's understandable because at the end of the 20th century, we kind of all went, well, all of us, a lot of us went, hmm, kind of we thought we'd have got a bit further than this politically by now. Yes, fewer people are starving, but... We haven't really solved some of those big political questions. And um, we haven't made all the changes we wanted to make. Maybe technology can do it. But I think the problem is precisely that the technology will only do what we tell it to do, and the data will only measure things that can be datafied. There's a thing called the self-quantification movement, which does some marvellous, quirky, and, uh, and original stuff. And some of it, I think, probably gives people real insights into themselves by measuring... Not just like where they go and how many miles they cycle, but their mood on different days or how much they ate or all sorts of really odd little things. But when I read about this, I thought, I think you're missing the point of what a self is. You can't quantify yourself. You can quantify lots of data about yourself, but yourself is the bit that is deciding that you want to know more about yourself. Or the, All of us in this room, our self is the thing that is sitting here grappling with ideas, thinking, disagreeing virulently with everything that's been said, wishing we hadn't run out of time, deciding which session to go to next, re-examining your ideas, feeling hungry, fancying the person in the row in front of you, whatever it is that's going on, that's the bit of you that's the self, and you can't quantify that. And that's the bit that has to make the decisions about what are we going to do with this great power of big data? Because, you know, we've been a little bit down on it on the panel, it has immense potential. It could be doing extraordinary things. You know, it's, it's already doing great things in research science. It, and we should grasp that and harness it and use it to do wonderful, ambitious things. But we shouldn't mistake it for the thing that's going to compensate for our lack of politics or 
ethics or moral judgment or whatever, because that is still always going to be down to us as human beings. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. Can we thank the whole panel? Uh, and thank you as well for your interesting comments and points. Um, so there's this much-hyped book, Big Data, Does Size Matter? Um, and I hope Tamandra Payne will cash so there isn't a data trial for that uh, plug that he gave the book. Uh, if you would like to buy a copy of this book and then have that pristine copy ruined by Tamandra writing in it, uh, there is an opportunity for this at 1 o'clock today. Tamandra will be doing a book signing down in the foyer bookshop of the book, so please uh, take advantage of that. Otherwise, next session in here is our Can Biotechnology Conquer Aging, which starts at 12 o'clock. Thank you very much. <laughs>